Chapter 7. I can't drive. I mean, I can, but they won't let me. Ernest hadn't driven in years. He hadn't bothered to get another licence after the last one was confiscated. Fine, I'll drive, said Esme. It's our car anyway, I just... well, never mind. She jumped into the driver's seat. Ernest in the back with Henry. And that settled it. They drove north. No matter what the circumstances, there was always something to love about a road trip. They all had something to celebrate, even Henry. He had done a lot of the groundwork for his back-channel fundraising project and got plenty of stock in his bag. It was carefully distributed in his clothes and in a concealed pocket in his luggage. It didn't count as smuggling if international borders were not crossed, but it felt just as exciting. There was enough to put him in prison for several years. He high-fived Henry. Let's make hell, he said. George's head snapped around, but she didn't say anything. There was almost nothing worth noting on the British motorway network. No single lane road stretching for miles without a car. No baking heat to melt the tarmac. No hillbilly taking pot shots at them from the branches of a tree. Even Ernest's request for Steve Earle was met with a groan. They went north, listening to Ken Bruce. They hit their first traffic jam before Luton and made slow progress towards the rehearsals in Leeds. Of course, there was a mix-up with the hotel room. The band had only booked one room for reasons which made sense to Ernest. There wasn't time for details, he said. I thought there would be only two of us, and I didn't want to give them any excuses. The hotel didn't have any family rooms, and after a vigorous discussion, they drove to a nearby travel lodge. Ernest would have the pull-out bed to himself, with the others crammed into the double bed. It would do for one night. There was an early rehearsal call at seven next morning, and the band would all travel together. Esme would spend the day with Henry exploring, and Ernest went to bed feeling content. A pillow landed on his face, waking him just after 6.30. He felt exhausted. Not much sleep, and Henry snoring his way through several hours. Ernest knew the rehearsal days would start early and last forever, but once they started the shows, things would be easier. He would be able to resume his nocturnal activities, laying in bed until noon. One way or another, he would arrange a room of his own, and he could really start to enjoy the tour. His thoughts turned to his parallel activities. The sooner he started unloading his contraband, the more money he would have, and the lower the sentence, if he was caught. As most people know, law enforcement officials are notorious for exaggerating the value of drugs seized. They usually talk about the street value, but this is a meaningless term. No high-end drug mule carrying several kilos of product will ever get involved in street dealing. Just like any commercial supply chain, there are multitudes of middlemen and layers of complexity. Illegal activities require even more dissembling than legal ones. First of all, street dealing is a slow-burn strategy involving large numbers of small deals. The more customers you have, the more likely you are to get caught. So a kilo of cocaine may fetch over £100,000 on the street, especially when added to many more kilos of bulking agent. But Ernest was not in that layer. He was carrying just over three kilos of pure, and had in mind a very select group of people spread thinly over the north of England. Therefore, the sooner he had his own quarters, the better. 
Ernest and George left the room while Henry was still asleep. They walked out of reception to wait for the band's coach to take them to the rehearsal room. They were just south of the city, between Leeds and Wakefield. Officially, Georgia was to audition later today, but Ernest hoped his and her persuasive skills could be used if needed. The prospect of Georgia and the others having to return south without playing a single show was appalling. A coach is never the best place to meet new people, and although Ernest had played with some of them before, that had been nearly twenty years ago, and many of those members had left. A little of that in the early hour led to an awkward silence as the van headed for the dual carriageway. The band were planning a reunion world tour, and these tentative first rehearsals were vital. If they could get a set list polished up, this mini taster tour of Northern England would be their calling card to launch an ambitious national and European tour, followed by the rest of the English-speaking world. If Georgia and Ernest gelled sufficiently, there was no reason they wouldn't be invited on the major world tour if it happened. Lots of ifs, and Henry needed his operation yesterday, but definitely within one year. Esme had confirmed the timeline provided by the various doctors. They were all due some luck. They sat next to each other in the snug. Ernest slipped out a pack of cards after they had seen him lose a load in the casino, his new girlfriends, they were treated to a poker lesson. It was never as easy as it looked, either playing or teaching poker. The most important thing to remember, of course, was that the ranking of the hands was comparatively unimportant. Essential, yes, but only the first step. Beginners spent too much time on that one, acting and negotiating, body language, unwritten rules and signs. They were what made you a winner. If you believed you had a straight flush, the other players would believe it too, and you couldn't just pretend to have a top hand every time. Not only was it technically impossible, but even the most novice player would soon realise your strategy. Memory was everything, after acting. To make sure you acted, like you had whatever hand was in your mind, was the thing, and to not be tempted into changing your mind halfway through the hand. After that, just mix it up and pretend to have a few duff hands. Make sure that whatever hand you were already imagining was possible, given the cards you had already seen since the last time the deck was shuffled. So yes, this was a lot of practice, but learning the ranks could be allowed to happen naturally. It was the perfect game for an actor, and not such a bad game for a songwriter either. And, Ernest reflected, not a bad game for a businesswoman to learn. To Ernest's initial disappointment, Esme was picking things up very quickly. But then he wondered whether experience counted for anything, whether he had wasted such a large proportion over the last twenty years. Finally, he came to think that he could put her up on poker night in his place to earn more additional funds than he would ever make. He would take his cut as her coach, and anyway, she wouldn't hold on to her winnings when she considered Henry's desperate situation. It was a win-win. She looked up at him as she put her cards down. I won't gamble Henry's operation fund, she said, somewhat surprisingly. For a start, poker wasn't gambling. It wasn't a game of chance, but of skill. Yes, a little luck helped, but so it did in any sporting contest. And that she had picked it up this easily, and convincing him that she had the nominated hand, substantially improved the odds. She was a dead cert. They would start with a small stake and build it up slowly, only risking the profits. They would never lose more than their first hundred pounds, and that seemed a safe strategy to him. Such was the state of Ernest's mind as he told Esme to play, although one positive was that his obsession for the next drink seemed to be diminishing. When they were together, it almost vanished. 
but then when they were together, he invariably had a drink on the go. In not smoking, he was a very modern musician ahead of his time. It wouldn't be many years before drinking went the same way, he feared. But then alcohol was the social drug. Smoking had been the most antisocial one. The smell even disgusted the smokers themselves. Kirk was both and neither. It made you no enemies, and was never outlawed by the ubiquitous red and white signs prohibiting smoking, and increasingly in city streets drinking. But the attendant sniffing and snorting drew a glare on occasion. On they played, Esme's calmness and concentration made her a convincing player. It's just like negotiating anything. This is easier than being at work. It will pay better if you can maintain this performance in a real game with money at stake, he said. He felt pride. He kissed her and they began another hand. Tomorrow night they would find a club. No time to waste. Like any serious entrepreneur, he needed several income streams to guarantee the kind of return he needed. If he could be free to offload the drugs, while Esme brought in some poker money, so much the better. And in their tour money and any tips they might pick up, they were up and running. Yes, he would have to disguise the source of Henry's funds somehow from Georgia, who already had taken the role of somehow mixing business partner and wife. She was a mother, of course, but then so was Esme. There were many types, though, the one with youngest children, for whom every day was new and stressful. Esme was the mother of teenagers who could leave them unattended at home and trust them to find their own way to school, sometimes. The experienced mother, after years of penal servitude, was rediscovering her own independence and behaving with abandon in a new, frenetic way reminiscent of her own teenagers. Georgia was too tight, too tense, and that was understandable, even though she was naturally more alluring. The one exception was when she took to the stage, and nobody in the room could take their eyes off her. She could enthrall an audience of thousands. Esme had none of those hang-ups once she relaxed. She envied her sister, but Ernest sensed her time had come. Mix the two sisters together, and you would have the perfect woman, one even Ernest would consider marrying. But mix them both together, it need hardly be said, and she, this unique creature, would be substantially out of his league. More than that, he felt sure that mixing them together would diminish their attractions as individuals. The sum of the parts in this case was greater than the whole. Quite suddenly, he slipped the cards back in the pack. Enough for one night, he said. It's too early to go back, she said. Let's go dancing for an hour. Ernest didn't know where the drugs had come from. They weren't his. He wouldn't want to be seen to be using them, or having any knowledge of their method of use. The closer he was to that world, the more knowledgeable he seemed, the higher chance that his side project would be discovered. Yet Esme seemed simply to assume that being a musician, he was constantly drunk or high. He was less drunk than he had been, and he was almost never high. Just a few times a week, if that. Show me, Ernest, she screamed into his ear, barely audible over the music. I need you sharp for tomorrow, your first poker night, remember? He shrugged her off, even though she was hanging from his shoulder, her arms clamped around his chest. Show me. Look, it's not hard, it's just like the movies. It's one of the only things in life that is. She brought out a twenty note from her handbag and proceeded to roll it up. Untidy, amateurish, but there was no mistaking its purpose. He shook his head not in plain sight. He dragged her off to a corridor in the back of the nightclub that led to the fire exit via the toilets. He had no intention of assisting or even permitting this to happen. Somehow the drink and the poker, all perfectly legal, didn't seem as bad. The sex, occasional and frequent as it was, felt impolite towards Georgia, but not a betrayal of his business relationship with her. 
Somehow drugs were something different. He had no doubt that Georgia had tried them at some point. Maybe she gave them up when Henry arrived. Maybe she still dabbled. He didn't know her as well as he thought. In some ways he knew Esme better. But this sordid corridor, with its strip lights, whiter than the sun to his tired eyes, was a new avenue, a prohibited entry, the wrong end of a one-way street. Please don't try this, he said. He grabbed her hands. Honestly, it's no fun. You sound like my dad. If it wasn't fun, you wouldn't do it. I don't. I've seen. Listen, I mean, I I don't. It's not like I do it much. I'm not a cokehead or an addict or anything. Then what? It's just expensive, that's all. We need all the money we can get. She seemed to consider this. Waste of money. That would appeal to her business brain, her drone employee side. How much did this cost? It's worth maybe 50, I guess. But how much did you pay? Nothing. Well, I mean, I don't... uh... So, not much of a cost then. I can try this out for free and stop. She wasn't going to get addicted from one or two hits. It wasn't exactly opium. He desperately wanted to stop her. The habit. It's habit forming. It will lead to graver things. She grabbed the small bag from his pocket and got her twenty back out. Shut it. I just want a little try. He was inexplicably angry. He grabbed the bag back. This was a test of willpower. For whatever reason, he had unwillingly chosen to make a point of this, to set a boundary. If she crossed this one, she would cross others. If this crazed fling didn't have some boundaries soon, it would spiral out of his control. Georgia would find out. Who knew what that would lead to? His hands shook. He tried to ram the bag into his pocket, but she was too quick. She hooked it back, gave him a shove, and turned on her heels. He stepped forward to grab her, missed and lost his balance. As she reached the toilets, he fell against the wall, getting his arm out in time to lessen the speed. His arms slid down the smooth white painted and damp wall, and he ended up sitting on the floor, slumped. Ernest had found that since their regrettable night in London, things felt uncomfortable when Georgia was with them. However, when Georgia was not present, everything felt very relaxed. The tension had subsided between Esme and Ernest, and within his head too, He began to see the real Esme, instead of the pretend one he had met that first time, that Sunday afternoon at Georgia's. She had been very depressed and dull indeed. He now realised she had been acting very poorly the role of the downtrodden career woman. The one who had been promised she could have it all ended up with nothing. If, for the sake of argument, the real Esme was some version of Georgia, and there was no reason to doubt it, then she would be very desirable indeed. Georgia without the music to cut it short. In a way, this made everything more complicated. A one-off fling was easy to cope with. A full-on relationship was more difficult, not only to explain to Georgia herself, but more pertinently, it raised uncomfortable memories for Ernest. He was a lone wolf, as he constantly reminded himself. Even a business partnership with anyone had been considered impossible at first. A relationship with that business partner's sister was obviously a bridge too far. Not double the difficulty, but the difficulty squared. These dilemmas, these challenges, are hard enough for anyone. They occupy all spare capacity. Every vacant thought is suddenly hijacked by the prospect of the next meal, the next meeting, the next opportunity to find out more about the new relationship. Unfortunately for the alcoholic, his every vacant moment is already occupied with the obsession to find the next drink. There is no room left for relationships, or pets, or even plants. 
Many of the plants Ernest had been entrusted with as part of his various rehab therapies had died within a week. He had never made it onto the cat-dog challenge. This was different though. As far as he knew, Esme could feed herself and make her own decisions. But the worry was there right from the off. How could he give full attention to his work with Georgia and his blossoming relationship with her sister and maintain his commitment to the bottle? As he finished this thought, Esme returned from the toilets, white powder clearly visible around her nostrils. Easy, she said, wiping her nose with the back of her hand. Don't feel any different, though. Give it time, he said, finally hauling himself to his feet. Give it time.